Welcome to Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of the iLab at the University of Toronto. This is part two of our podcast on medical ethics and the neurosurgeon with our guest, Professor Sunit Das, a neurosurgeon and neuroscientist at the University of Toronto's Medical School. This part two will focus on a recent article published in the New York Times by Joseph Stern, a neurosurgeon in Greensboro, North Carolina, entitled Moral Distress in Neurosurgery of August 15, 2019. So I thought f- uh, for the rest of our, of our conversation, we, we could um, talk about um, th- this question, uh, the, 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 moral, the moral distress or the moral dilemmas faced by neurosurgeons in, in particular. And, um, and I, I thought we could do this by uh, looking at uh, a, a case that uh, was described by a, a neurosurgeon in, in the New York Times of August 15, 2019, and the title happens to be Moral Distress and Neurosurgery. Um, and um, so I was wondering if perhaps you could kind of lay out in, in, in lay terms what the, what the clinical situation is yeah. that, that kind of give, gives rise to these, these moral questions. So, um, so Joe Stern in this essay uh, describes um, a clinical scenario that I think all of us in neurosurgery would be familiar with um, uh, at both the staff and training level, something very common. Uh, He describes an older patient, uh, well, who came in with a neurologic deficit related to something called a subdural hematoma. Uh, A subdural hematoma is essentially bleeding on the surface of the brain. And this bleeding... um, tends to occur in two different situations. First is that we often see it in either younger or older people who've had a blow to the head. And that force uh, and the sheer energy of that force can cause tearing of veins on the surface of the brain and bleeding on the surface of the brain uh, associated with it. Um, You can imagine by the way I've just described it, these are patients who have tended to have a pretty significant head injury and they're patients who often need emergency surgery, uh, and um, the outcomes in those patients are often very poor, not because the surgery is not effective, but because of the underlying brain injury that was associated with the event that caused the bleeding itself. What Dr. Stern in this essay brought up was kind of the second time, or the second sort of scenario that we see patients with subdural hematomas. And this is almost universally in older patients and it requires a little explaining. Um, So developmentally, the brain, the covering of the brain called the dura mater and the skull develop in unison with each other. And the skull and brain are essentially opposed to each other in young people. As we age, uh, the brain atrophies, it shrinks. Some more than others, Marcus. As a result, the veins that extend from the surface of the brain to the dura mater are put under stretch. And even a minor injury, a small 
hit of the head on a chair, a, a small fall, can cause these veins to tear and bleed. Um, these tend to be minor events, meaning that there's some tearing of the vein. It's not complete tear, but it's enough to cause some bleeding. Because the vein's under low pressure, the bleeding tamponades and stops, but now the vein's under even more stretch, and this happens again and again, and a smaller trauma is necessary the next time in order to cause more bleeding. And finally, there's enough blood on the surface of the brain that there's pressure exerted on the brain itself, and that leads to neurologic dysfunction. And he describes a case of this, a gentleman who comes in, again, relatively healthy, older man, who came in with a subdural hematoma, um, causing symptoms. And um, after speaking with him and his family, he took this gentleman to surgery. It's a relatively straightforward surgery, um, if you're a neurosurgeon, uh, that involves uh, making a small hole in the skull, making a small opening in the dura mater, and evacuating that blood on the surface of the brain. And most patients do well, and many patients don't. Um, and he describes the situation of a patient of his who, despite surgery, continued to do poorly. Um, and he puts this in the context uh, of decision-making in general in neurosurgery. Um, and the fact that as neurosurgeons, we're often faced with scenarios where our past experiences have given us a reason for pessimism in terms of what to expect. And we are personally and professionally obliged to act with some hope that things will turn out otherwise. Um, he then he brings up uh, a paper that um, was published um, by a group at University of Pennsylvania uh, that involved a questionnaire and survey of neurosurgical trainees, neurosurgical residents. And uh, what they found distressingly uh, is that Feeling distress because of decision-making by their uh, mentors and staff was something that was almost universally uh, experienced by neurosurgical trainees. Uh, in other words, that at some point they had, had to participate in a decision of care uh, that they didn't feel was correct or morally right. Um, and uh, beyond that, that the, the trainees almost universally felt that while that they had developed a skill set that allowed them to perform the technical intervention that the situation would call for, that they didn't have the skill set of communications and um, moral heuristics to think about what how to even consider uh, the situation more fully in terms of uh, um, a moral choice. Yeah, so I, I want to um, think about this some some more. Um, the the situation where you're faced with making a, a choice, 
um, yeah, say, moral choice. Uh, in this case, whether to operate again, because uh, this uh, older guy um, started bleeding again. And so, so as I understand it, um, you know, from an extreme lay perspective, um, uh, this would have been, you know, another simple procedure, same procedure to suck the blood out and, Correct. you know, but uh, hey, it didn't work the first time and, and you know, uh, maybe it won't work the second time and, 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 and uh, he didn't stand such a great chance of, of uh, uh, perhaps surviving, but, but not surviving. Surviving in, well. Sur surviving, surviving well. Um, so so I, to, the, the New York Times piece is, is, is really interesting because, because this uh, Dr. Stern, the, the neurosurgeon, shares with us kind of what went into his, his thinking and deciding whether he should go ahead and operate again. Yeah. And, and again, from, from an outsider's perspective, there, there are many things <laughs> that I found extremely peculiar. Um, and and it's, so it's really very kind of Dr. Stern to share with, with us his, his thought process. So so one, so you mentioned this paper, and, and but the paper apparently he finds out about because he happens to have gone two weeks earlier before he has to uh, face this question to uh, a conference on palliative care held by the Archdiocese of Boston. So, so just from an outside reader, this this very interesting that th this coincidence that that he is faced with this choice. Uh, but you know, two weeks earlier he'd heard about this. The study and and uh, which ends up essentially giving him not just essentially giving him the framework to to deal with this very very tough choice and yeah. and by the way it's also a, a, a conference organized by the archdiocese of Boston so talk about kind of religion and, and you know being high high priests um, um, but but that that becomes kind of the uh, the way. That allows him to think his way through right. through this very very difficult choice, but but to an outsider, it's also a choice that he must have faced, you know, four million times before, or or many of you have faced all the time. So you what, know, I, I think about yeah. so this is yeah, again, yeah. it's a it's a common procedure in neurosurgery. It's yeah. something that that I face commonly, um, and I prepare. Uh, typically here you're preparing patients' families for the procedure because the patient, him or herself, is presenting in distress. Um, that's why they're with you. Uh, but I warn, I warn people that if we simply look at what experience has taught us, one out of five patients will hemorrhage again after evacuation. Four out of five won't, uh, but that's not an insubstantial number of people who will who will struggle with this. Um, and many of those patients we take back to surgery. Sometimes those patients require a more aggressive surgery. Um, it's, it's telling that um, this study that kind of brought things together for Dr. Stern yeah. isn't one he encountered at a medical conference, right? He, he found it in a Outsiders place that very few of us in medicine would ever find ourselves uh, uh, being attentive to. It's a little bit scary. After after uh, I, I find an incredibly moving description of, of an incredibly tough choice, but I, I find it scary that 
just how unprepared this doctor seemed to have been to, to make this choice that he must have made and many others like him a million times before. So it's a, a study of, of how other people have experienced a similar distress that then helps him deal with the distress. Uh, right. And it's, which I, I find on a way, it's kind of, it's charming in a way, yeah. in, in its simplicity, but it's also, uh, it's scary, one, because you would have thought that this wouldn't be news to anyone, but second, it's, it's, it's a discovery that he's not alone. Well, I that think kind of makes makes a huge difference, which is also just kind of mind-blowing that this would be a discovery at this point, that yeah, he's I, not alone. I think you're capturing something very significant and um, right that he feels he feels himself to be a steward of his field in taking his patient through surgery, but he feels himself completely alone in in guiding the patient to decide to do no more. Um and I will say, um, I mean, I, I think there's a way in which that uh, resonates to my own experience. But I wonder to some degree if it resonates simply because the finality of guiding a patient towards a decision that will result in their death is... It's a heavy decision. It's mm. in a way, it's a heavier decision than pushing gung ho forward and trying for everything hope will allow you. Um, in a way, that's that's a much easier decision to make. Um, I hate to say it's easy to decide on surgery, and if things don't work out, they don't work out, and that's unfortunate. It's it's much it's a much harder thing to decide not to act. Uh, partly because of the finality of it, but partly because our whole identity as neurosurgeons is based on the audaciousness of deciding we are going to act. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it takes a lot of uh, confidence and courage to cut, cut up somebody's skull and start, you know, messing around with their brain. Um, but. I mean, you put it, it so elegantly there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's, a, it's an art. Uh, but what I, what, what I mean is, it, it, you know, it, it takes perhaps in some cases more courage and more fortitude and, and you know, whatever, audaciousness to, to, to not to do not. that and to, and to look people, you know, in the eye and say, listen, I, I mean, I've tried and I can try again, but um, this is... This is not going to be in, in the patient's yeah. best interest. And uh, so the, the def so I noticed that in that study, too, that the, the default is you just go ahead and do the surgery again because that's the easy choice. Well, but it's odd that, that people who think of themselves as kind of these, you know, macho, whatever, surgeons who can do anything, yeah. but then, that then would take the easy way out yeah. just because it's uncomfortable to have this conversation well, with, with people. you know, it's worth remembering as well. Um, these are scenarios that are occurring between a physician and, and typically a patient and family that they don't have a relationship with or a history with, right? These are people they've just met. Um, I think about my own role as a surgical oncologist. Um, that role of preparing people for an inevitable end 
as an oncologist is one that I can take and base on time and history. I, I know people for months, for years, and from the beginning tell them we found something that will result in your death. We're going to do everything we can to treat it. At some point, we're going to be in a place where my job is going to be to say to you, we don't have any further to go. But there's a, there's a, there's a way in which that conversation is, I don't want to say easier, but it's possible because it's based on a trust that I've developed with someone over the course of time um, that's much harder in a situation like this. Right? He's known these people for three days. Um, it's... it's uh, yeah, I mean, I, I can't imagine how hard this must be. Um, you know... Uh, it is really, really hard, and, and I mean, if you're kind of in this line of work, then that is what you have to do, and, and, and hopefully you'll be trained um, to do. Um, it, it's, it, I, I just, I, 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 was, I was surprised and saddened in a way, I mean, um, by the fact that it seemed that, that Neurosurgeons may maybe is such a loss when it comes to not just making this decision, but then also discussing it with the family members or or, or the patient, um, so that um, it seemed like Doctor Stern was 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 looking for some kind of guidance. You know, uh, he calls it a framework to to help him work this out. And and, yeah. and it, it it struck me that there could have been any number of other frameworks that might have suggested themselves. For example, uh, a code, you know, a code of ethical responsibility that guides right. lo uh, lawyers, that you know, yeah. doctors, um, I don't know, the Hippocratic Oath. Um, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I was surprised that, that kind of he, he, yeah. he felt that he started from, from, scratch. from scratch, which, I, which I, is... Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure... Um, I'm not sure how much of that may have been um, kind of just the narrative approach that he used. Um, it, it seems a little, I will say, I, my suspicion is it's not the first time, like you've said, that he's encountered this. And it's something that he's, the, being the thoughtful person he is, it's, it's obviously something he's processed over and again with each encounter that he's had. Um, you know, we, we do, I think, as physicians have... Uh, ethical guidelines. We do have ethical formula that we use to approach situations like this. And they're, they're, they're for the most part, guided by this idea of trying to be true to a patient's wishes. Um, and, and I'll say part of the difficulty often in these end-of-life situations is that the discussion of what one's wishes are are not ones that we can have with the patient. Sure. They're not ones that the family is able to clarify for us because they're not conversations that they've had. And so we're often left without that guide. Um, and many families, 
being in a situation where they're hearing one of two choices. We can either do nothing and it will certainly lead to death, or we can try something and it may lead to death, but it may not. Most people will choose without a sense of purpose driven by some previous knowledge. Most people will choose the latter of those two options. Yeah, I, I don't, I have to, I mean, obviously you, you would know better than I would. I, um, I, 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 but I also found it interesting that in this particular case, um, the family agrees. So, so it's kind of a happy, it's a happy, it's a happy ending, ending in, yeah. in the end, except, yeah, as he points except out, he, yeah. it's the, you know, it leads, everyone agrees the best thing is for the patient, yeah. their father, um, to die, so... It's hard to call that a happy ending, but it's a proper yeah. ending. No, no, so, so, but what I, what I meant is, in this particular case, the family seemed to, yeah. it didn't, it, it, it's not a story about how the family needed convincing, it just right. seemed, it kind of... It somehow, it like somewhat magically, fell yeah. into place once, um, and so in a way, the, the truly difficult cases are the ones that you refer to. I would think where, where the family, yes, knows everything and understands maybe, but still thinks, hey, listen, you gotta go ahead we and do go. it, uh, yeah. and and then then what do you then what do you do? And I think when he is talking about moral distress in neurosurgery. To some degree, so that's one element of what he's he's getting at, and that study was getting at. Um, what do you do when you have an idea of what is right action that's in contradiction to what you're being directed to do? Um, uh, and again, the the ambiguity of this is often because we don't have a sense of what the wishes of the patient for whom these decisions are actually being made would be. Yeah, so it, it seems that uh, there's agreement and at least what the standard is. It's you know, what's in the best interest of the patient and the difficulties figuring out what that is. The, you know, the easy way would be to ask the patient, although even in that case, they may not know what's in their best interest. But let's say, let's say um, you're dealing with a situation like in this case where the, the patient can't tell you so the question is, you know, what is in this patient's best interest without right. being able to ask him? Um, and and so so one of the questions, one of the things that I'm not sure I, I I understand is is the is the moral distress caused by you having this figured out what the patient's putative constructive uh, interest might be, um, and and you disagree with with the family, or or do you do you, um, you know, in other words, do you do you think the family is wrong, um, right. or, or do you, do you think you both share the same understanding of what the what is in the best interest of the patient? You just kind of have different understandings of how we might bring this about. And, and if it's the former, in other words, if you disagree with the family's uh, interpretation of what would be in the best interest of the patient, then wouldn't it be your role to step back and, and say, well, this is actually not my call. I, I, I'm, I, so going back to our earlier right. conversation about kind of providing people with information, yeah. Yeah. Like you, you have done everything you can, you have made a conclusion based on the evidence, but there are people better positioned to make this call, yeah. and they have made this call, and now, you know, um, yeah, 
you know, it's, it's, isn't, it's, this, isn't the solution simple? In it's, it's worth putting this in a historical context and mm. making note of the fact that the patients' rights movements of the late 70s and 80s, that much of the thrust of those movements were driven by seminal cases in which doctors wanted to treat patients in a certain way, and patients didn't want those treatments. Mm. Uh, some of the critical ones, for example, uh, one is a patient who was taken to court because her physician wanted to give her chemotherapy for a cancer that she didn't want treated. And she understood that it was a terminal disease and that she would succumb to her disease sooner without the chemotherapy, and she decided that's what she wanted. And that resulted in a court case uh, that is, was one of the first articulations of the rights of patients in the legal setting. Um, it's interesting we've now, when we think about um, physician-patient conflict in terms of end of life and decision-making, now 30 years later, we typically think of scenarios where patients want a treatment that doctors don't feel is the right one. Um, and typically that means some life-sustaining treatment uh, that, that a physician thinks is ethically inappropriate to offer. Um, and, and I think fundamentally what that is getting to um, is that a is, is a conflict between what the physician sees as a meaningful life and what a patient and patient's family deems to be a meaningful life. Um, and legally, we know the answer to that, which is um, that the courts have ruled in favor of the rights of patients to make decisions of that sort. Um, and, and ethically and morally, um, we could perhaps make the argument that a patient's filial duty to I'm sorry, a physician's filial duty to uh, respect the wishes of her patient trump all other duties of the physician. I don't know if that's... I, I actually don't know saying that if I can say that that's um, a moral law above everything else in medicine, but uh, certainly that would make sense of how one would accept it. Yeah, um, it seems that people have a hard time figuring out what kind of the, you know, the, the highest law of, of medical ethics is. is. Uh, I, I, that, I guess, makes sense. People should disagree about this. Um, what, what, I, what I find you know, su surprising or at least, uh, I don't know, um, suggesting, you know, further attention or discussion is, is, is that it's not that people feel like they're choosing between different options, but they don't even seem to be able to formulate what these options are. So they, they, they seem to be based on the fact of a particular case, and then it's incredibly hard, and there are people, and there are histories yeah. and situations, and, and it's an emergency. Um, but, you know, I, well, wouldn't it be great if we had some sort of framework, you know, just ethical tools, whatever you want to call them, that would allow us working with the patient and or their, their relatives to, to reach the right, you know, conclusion. It does seems in, in this, in, so in this case, and I, I want to kind of um, maybe conclude with this because in this case, it seems in the end, there's this, 
this happy ending. Right. Now, not not in the sense that the, obviously the patient is dead, but but um, uh, uh, the distress is gone. So there was moral distress, and then right. we had a conversation, and then uh, the doctor does what everyone we're supposed to, you know, just believe that, but that's fine, D decides it's the right thing to do, and then the moral distress is Dissipate. gone, yeah. and, and that's kind of the happy ending. Right, so, so I, I mean, here the distress, yeah. it seems, arose from an assumption on his part as to what his duty required or would require. And so the assumption on his part was that the patient and the patient's family would have wanted him to do more. Um, and that almost led him uh, to not ask the question, what do you actually want? Um, and, and maybe that's the, the end answer mm. to this is that's always the clarifying principle is for us to communicate that question. What is it that you want? Um, Atul Gawande has an amazing book um, that is essentially a, meditating, a meditation on end of life and death. Um, and he talks about his father who had a, a tumor of the cervical spine. The, the cervical spinal cord controls the motor power of the arms and legs and all sensation from the arms and legs and it also controls the um, muscles of ventilation, what's required to breathe. When people have an injury of the cervical spinal cord, they're often dependent on a ventilator because they're not able to breathe for themselves. And his father was found to have this tumor. Uh, it was His father was retired at that point and spent the most of his time either with his grandchildren or playing tennis. Mm. And they discovered this tumor because he had some mild uh, hand clumsiness and he was seen by a neurosurgeon and the neurosurgeon spoke with them about the inoperability of the tumor and um, that the tumor would be something that he would finally neurologically worsen to, from and succumb to and that perhaps they could treat him with radiation as a way of slowing that process and he underwent radiation therapy and it slowed the tumor but came at the cost of his function and as a result of radiation he wasn't able to play tennis anymore with his friends and he had a hard time playing with his grandkids and Gawande makes the point of the weight he felt of horror of not asking his father before they did this, what is it that you want? What's important to you? I've um, I spent a lot of time talking with patients about end of life and about what their what they want their last days to look like. And um, there's a lot of there's a there's a whole literature on how to have these conversations with patients, and much of it is. It's actually very thoughtful and informative. And one of the things that comes up over again in talking to patients is to use the phrase, if time were short, what would, you, what would be important to you? And I think that's such a critical question. Um, 
and I'll say if, if we should include anything in what we train patients, I'm sorry, train physicians to think about, uh, maybe it's, it's to remember always to ask that question. If time were short, what would be important to you? Well, on that note, I want to thank you, um, Sunit, for talking to us today, and, and hopefully this will be uh, the first of many conversations. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Get Ethical, the podcast of the Center for Ethics and its Ethics of AI Lab at the University of Toronto. This was part two of our two-part podcast on medical ethics and the neurosurgeon with Professor Sunit Das of the University of Toronto's Medical School. Please listen to part one as well. And if you're curious about the center's activities, check out our website at ethics.utoronto.ca.